Thanks for listening. Learn more about our church and support by giving to the Mission of the Oaks at www.theoakscommunitychurch.org. We have come to our scripture reading this morning. It comes from Proverbs 21, 21. Please feel free to follow along in your Bible or on a Bible that is under the seats in front of you. Whoever pursues righteousness and kindness will find life, righteousness, and honor. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Ooh. Got a little power this morning. Uh, let, me, let me start off with a, with a prayer here. Um, will you guys pray with me? God, um, we pray for this time as we, um, as we get into your word. I pray that your word challenges us and encourages us this morning. And um, I pray that you give us um, just quiet hearts, uh, open ears to be able to listen. Amen. Okay. So, I'm going to fire a question off at you to start off. All right. What is the most valuable thing in your home? Pets and people aside, what is the most valuable thing in your home? I'd like you to write it down on a piece of paper with your address. (laughs) Send that up to me. (laughs) Um, No. Okay. And when I say valuable, I don't mean necessarily like what's the thing that costs the most money. I mean, what... If your house was burning and you could run in and save one thing, what would that one thing be? When I was 15, my one thing was a 51-disc CD changer, stereo, that my parents had bought me for Christmas. Um, This thing was massive. In the days before Spotify, you could put 51. Why 51? I don't know, because it's one more than 50. You could put 51 discs in this thing and hit shuffle. And if you were willing to wait seven minutes between songs for it to like <laughs> disload one and put one in, you could just shuffle all your music. And I remember telling myself, if there's ever a fire, you just got to grab the stereo and go. So uh, excluding pets, people, and cars, what's yours? Think about that. What would you be the most bummed out about if it was damaged, lost, destroyed, or stolen? Now, for me, this isn't a hypothetical because just this summer, the most valuable thing that I own was stolen from me. This summer, a grown man walked into my garage in broad daylight and rode out on my 2019 Trek EX8 29-inch full suspension mountain bike. Now, if you were expecting me to say that my most valuable thing was like love letters from my wife or drawings from my kids, hi, I'm Dan. (laughs) I like to preach here sometimes. I have the emotional intelligence of a lampshade. So... I love my bike. I I, I love my bike. I paid what I consider to be a good amount of money for it. Um, It fits me perfectly. It rides really well. I get out on it a decent bit. And I was crushed when I found out it had been taken. Now, luckily, with the help of some great friends, my ring camera, and some 
you know, nifty police work, the Middletown uh, Police Department was able to catch the guy, and I was reunited with my baby. I mean, my bike. <laughs> and what was interesting was I was actually there when they caught him. I was present to see the whole thing go down, and I had an opportunity to interact with the guy who stole my precious. <laughs> he tried to deny it. He said it was his bike. But I had the whole thing on video. Pro tip, if you're going to steal a bike, don't wear a Bart Simpson iCarumba t-shirt because it makes you pretty easy to identify. So I get there and I'm with this guy who stole my bike and there's police and the, the police are they're smart. They don't let us get real close to each other. So they're kind of keeping us apart. And I was stewing, man. I was mad. And I was just staring daggers at this guy. Um, and at one point in time, he noticed me over there glowering at him. And he said, what the expletive are you looking at? <laughs> to which I, because I'm awesome and mature, said, the jerk who stole my bike. <laughs> which earned me more expletives and some threats. When they kind of put him in the back of the cruiser and when they gave me back my, my bike, it was an understatement to say that I was relieved. But it kind of like threw off my entire day. The rest of the day felt odd. It felt weird. And I remember I was kind of processing it in a very modern way, which was I was texting all my friends and telling them about my experience. And they were texting back, wow, that's crazy. And oh, I can't believe it. You are so lucky you got that back. That never happens. And Replies like that. Um, but I got one message back. There was one response that has stuck with me. One response that I thought was really, <laughs> really interesting. When I relayed the story to my brother, Kevin, he didn't ask me any other questions. He didn't ask for clarification. He asked me one thing. He said, did you ask him why he didn't take the candlesticks? Now, Oh, for a lot of you, that reference, you're searching for it. You're like, do I understand what he's, what he's saying here? Let me clarify for those of you guys who don't know. In the book or play movie Les Mis, there's a desperate convict. His name is Jean Valjean, and he is shown unexpected mercy. He's released from prison. He has nowhere to go. He's traveling, and he has nowhere to sleep. And he ends up um, being taken in uh, at a rectory. By a bishop. And in the middle of the night, he sneaks out, he hits the bishop, and he steals this valuable silverware. Now, a little later, they catch him and they bring him back. And, you know, with the, um, with the intention of saying, here's the guy who stole your silverware. We caught him. We'll, we'll punish him. Here's your silverware back. But rather than condemn him, the bishop claims that he gave the silverware willingly, and then he, he, he actually offers him more. He says, and Jean, why didn't you take the candlesticks? They're very valuable. You should have taken the candlesticks like I told you to. And this act of grace in the book, it just it profoundly impacts Valjean. It transforms his life, 
and he, he, he makes this lifelong commitment to helping others. <laughs> so when my brother asked me, did you ask him why he didn't take the candlesticks? Like, oh man, like my heart just melted. My heart melted because I had become so focused on my interpretation of justice, my interpretation of getting back what was mine and punishing the person who threatened to take it, that to my shame, I had lost all concept of mercy. So these concepts of mercy and justice, that's what we're talking about this morning, and they, they, they have a, um, a complex relationship. We read about them all throughout Scripture. We read about them in Proverbs. We read about them everywhere. Um, they help us understand who God is and who God wants us to be. We just read Proverbs 21, 21. It'll be up here again. It reads, whoever pursues righteousness, now the Hebrew word here can also mean justice, whoever pursues righteousness and kindness, the Hebrew word here can mean mercy, will find life, righteousness, and honor. So that's what we're digging into today, because that sounds pretty good. So we're going to start by, we're going to talk about a biblical view of mercy and justice, and then we're going to look at our calling to be merciful and just. And finally, we'll discuss how we can fulfill that calling. As I just mentioned, God's mercy and justice, they are common themes. Um, We see them all throughout the Bible, but we should lay some groundwork here. We should clarify what um, what these ideas mean, because the biblical understanding of mercy and justice is going to be different than the world's understanding of mercy and justice. Uh, The world sees mercy and justice as opposite ends of a spectrum. So justice is being a wrong that we punish, and mercy being a wrong that we could punish but choose not to. And through this lens, we're given a binary choice. You can either be merciful or just, one or the other, but... This is not how the Bible presents these concepts. When these Bible presents these concepts, they are often presented together with seemingly no contradiction. I'm going to put a couple of verses up here on the the screen for us. One is what we just read. Whoever pursues righteousness, justice, and kindness, mercy, will find life, righteousness, and honor. Micah 6.8, And what does the Lord require of you? to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. By the way, I love that verse. I feel like we should put this verse somewhere else. It's super helpful. What does the Lord require of you? Here it is. Act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. Psalm 89, 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love, alternate translation, mercy, and faithfulness go before you. I could go on, but the idea is the world wants to split the baby in half and have this binary choice, justice or mercy, but that's not how the Bible tells us it works with God. In his book, Generous Justice, Tim Keller writes that justice emphasizes action 
And mercy emphasizes attitude. Justice emphasizes the actions. And mercy emphasizes the attitudes or the motive behind the actions. And so biblical justice comes out of merciful love. And if you're going, (laughs) I don't get it. That sounds contradictory. How can justice come out of mercy? That only contradicts itself if you narrow your definition of justice to punishment. However, a better definition of justice is giving someone their fair due. Giving someone what they deserve, what they've earned, their wages, whether that be punishment, whether that be protection, or whether that be care. I want you guys to look at this, another verse in Proverbs here. We're going to look at Proverbs 31, verses 8 and 9. And it reads, Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, also could be translated justly, defend the rights of the poor and needy. So think back to Les Mis. Okay, we, we all agree that the bishop acted with mercy. But was he acting justly? Was the bishop acting justly? Remember that justice, biblical justice, is more than just punishment. Um, the bishop tells uh, Valjean, he says, Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil but to good. It is your soul that I buy from you. I withdraw it from black thoughts and the spirit of perdition, and I give it to God. There's some accountability here. There's some merciful justice at work. Couldn't we argue that by uh, that the bishop was advocating for somebody who was poor and needy? Couldn't we say that by foregoing judgment and meeting his physical needs, and redirecting him to God, he was restoring some level of dignity that had been taken from him, that had been lost. Whenever you think about justice, you know, I immediately think of a courtroom. You think about the courts. Um, Earliest 20th century Chief Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, he said, when one thinks coldly, I see no reason to a man or excuse me, I see no reason for attributing to a man a significant difference in kind from that which belongs to a baboon or a grain of sand. That's some cold justice there. And through that lens, if that's your outlook, if that's your lens, then there's really no point in restoring human dignity because the premise doesn't exist. How much dignity does a, does a grain of sand have? And doing justice would simply be synonymous with punishment. But on the other hand, let's look at this quote from C.S. Lewis. Lewis believed that every single person had a spark of the divine. Every person had something, some imprint of the creator in them. And he said, There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. 
but it is immortals with whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, exploit, etc. So if you believe that every person has value because they reflect the image of God, then the idea of justice has to include restoration. And you simply cannot separate it from mercy. You know, we, Megan was just up here a minute ago and talking a little bit about our mercy ministry, and we've aptly, you know, named it the mercy ministry. And it would be confusing, but I believe we could rightly also call it the justice ministry. The goals of the ministry go beyond simply meeting needs. The aim is, in small ways, to restore dignity. And that's why, as we're going through this, this big you know, reconstruction of the area, that's why there was a, 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 a healthy discontent with just handing people food. And, and that's valuable. I don't want like, to say that that's invaluable, but we aim for more. The goal of the ministry is to engage with people, to give them choices, to give them ownership, to give them autonomy, and to build community. Eventually, I mean, we want to treat people like people and not like projects and give them their due as people created in the image of God. So let me summarize this whole idea here, this biblical understanding of these concepts. I'm going to share a long quote. It's going to be on the screen from uh, Tim Keller. He says... We do justice when we give all human beings their due as creations of God. Doing justice includes not only righting the wrongs, but generosity and social concern, especially towards the poor and vulnerable. This kind of life reflects the character of God. It consists of a broad range of activities, from simple, fair, and honest dealings with people in daily life to regular, radically generous giving of your time and resources to activism that seeks to end particular forms of injustice, violence, and oppression. So this is our groundwork for what it means to be merciful and just. This is the biblical definition, the biblical meaning of mercy and justice. But let's focus now on our calling as a people to be merciful and just. I want to use um, a section of Scripture from Luke 14, this is, um, this is Jesus, and this is an interesting interaction that he has. Um, Jesus is invited to what seems to be like a fancy dinner um, at the home of a Pharisee, and he goes to this dinner, and the Pharisees are kind of jockeying for position and who gets to sit where, and you know, they're, who gets more honor than who. And Jesus tells the host of the dinner, he says... When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just." Did you guys pick that up? 
the just. Jesus calls the simple act of inviting the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind to dinner. He calls that justice. Showing kindness towards disadvantaged, marginalized, forgotten people who could never pay you back is literally the definition of doing justice. And this helps us understand what our calling could look like. This helps us understand what doing merciful justice could be. Because it can be feeding the poor. It can be visiting the widow. It can be advocating for those who have no voice. And it could be giving your, the ex-con your candlesticks. But the challenging question that we have Christians, we have to face and we have to look at ourselves in the mirror and say, are we doing it? Are we doing it? John Newton, you may recognize him as the guy who wrote Amazing Grace. He wrote this little bit of commentary about Luke 14. He said, One would almost think that Luke 14, 12 through 14, was not considered part of God's word, nor has any part of Jesus' teaching, any part of Jesus' teaching been more neglected by his own people. I do not think it is unlawful to entertain our friends. But if these words do not teach us that, is, that it is in some respect our duty to give preference to the poor, then I am at a loss to understand them. You know, it's hard to know with, that, with that, a verse like Luke 14, like how literal am I supposed to take this? And it kind of reminds me of the rich young ruler passage where Jesus tells the rich young ruler, he says, you know, sell all your possessions and give them to the poor. And he goes and walks away sad because he's quite rich. And we read that and we go, well, certainly that doesn't apply to me. He certainly doesn't want to, um, me to sell all my possessions and give them to the poor, right? And we read this, Luke 14, and it's like, don't invite your friends and your family to dinner. Bring in the poor. And we're like, well, certainly I can invite some friends or I can do it sometimes. And we, so anyways, we want to figure out where the line is. And I don't exactly know where that line is, but what I can tell you, what I can safely say is we're called to be radically generous. Wherever that line is, we should look radically generous and radically kind to the least of these in our community. And if we're not, if we don't look like that, if it's not, if the outside world doesn't see that in our lives, then we're doing something wrong. And God has a warning for people who ignore the call to justice. God speaking to the Israelites in the book of Isaiah, he says, When you spread out your hands, I, the Lord, will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, and plead the widow's cause. And then in Matthew 25, you know, Jesus is talking about the end times. In Matthew 25, he's talking about the final judgment. And he talks about separating people into two groups. And you have the sheep on one side and the goats on the other. And the sheep are the people, are, those are Jesus' people. These are the people who know him. And the goats are the people who don't. And this is what he says to the goats. Man, let's, let's, let's calm our hearts for a second to hear this. This, one, this, one's, this one's hard. He says, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. 
I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, someone overlooked or ignored, you did not do it to me. And I... I, I want that to sink in because I think that should challenge us. I do want to clarify that what Jesus isn't saying is that you do these things to earn your salvation. That's not how salvation (laughs) works. That's the free gift that we get from Jesus. But what he is saying is that doing justice is a mark of genuine faith. And if that is not present, that's an indicator of a sickness. It's an indicator that something has gone astray. So... That's our calling. Let's take inventory. Are we being obedient to the call towards mercy and justice? Are we being mercifully just towards our neighbors, our community, and the world? Now, speaking of the world, I'm going to take a bit of a tangent, but I think I debated this part a little bit, but I think it's necessary because the biblical view of justice that we have, I've broadened it out, right, than a a traditional view. The biblical view, I brought it out, what it means to do justice. But in that broadening out, I don't want you to think that it excludes what we typically think of when we think of justice, which is righting wrongs and punishing evil. It does, okay? The world's concept of justice isn't wrong, it's just narrow, So in the same way that Jesus cares about the least of these and doing justice and being merciful towards um, the poor and the needy, he also cares for the world. He cares for Israel and Palestine and Ukraine and Russia. And and what we've seen in the world has been startling. I I mean, the, the October 7th attack was abhorrent, like 100% evil, abhorrent, awful. And there's no joy in seeing Gaza bombed and people dying there. And so we have to ask ourselves, you know, as we look at what's going on in the world, specifically right now in the Middle East, we, we say, well, is, is, is Israel's response right? Are they just? Are they being just? And I've been thinking a lot about that. And the world is thinking a lot about that. And there are a lot of loud voices coming at us on this topic. What should our response be? What should our response be when it seems like the only way to stop evil is to pick up a sword? Hey, Jesus, he says, blessed are the peacemakers. And he calls us to love our enemies. But... When we look at something like the Holocaust and we look at World War II, none of us feel like, you know, what the United States did during World War II was the wrong thing to do. We felt like that was the just thing to do. So what are we to think and do about something like this? And I'm just going to say, like many of you, I'm, I'm working through it. I hope you are too. I'm working through it. I've been reading articles 
It's been floating in and out of my mind throughout the sermon. Um, <clears throat> here's what I feel confident in. Here's what I feel confident with. Um, whatever we do, we enter into it with a lot of prayer. And we need to have our hearts ready to listen. And I think we have to defend against two errors, two evils, um, when, we, when, we, when we think about this stuff. The first one would be complacency, to just write it off. And then the second one would be hatred. To hate, to, to let hate take root in our hearts. Living in this world as a Christian, it requires, and we talk about this a decent amount from up here, it requires living with tension. We defend justice, but our justice is tempered by mercy. We extol mercy, but there is an accountability in that mercy. And at some level, you and I are going to have to get used to living with dissatisfaction of imperfect justice here on earth. And we are just going to have to look forward to the day when Jesus comes back and with his perfect, perfect justice. You've heard the phrase, charity starts in the home. I think we could probably project and say justice starts in the home. So we, we should and we all can pray for the Middle East, but most of us aren't in a position to tangibly act um, to bring justice there. However, you can tangibly act to bring justice here. In, the, in, in his greatest commandment, Jesus tells us, love your neighbor. <laughs> it's interesting. Why love your neighbor? Why not love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love the world? But he says, love your neighbor. And there must be some wisdom in prioritizing the circle of people that we could tangibly be present with. Okay, I'm off that tangent. I'm sure I satisfied nobody with that one, but we're going to move on. I do want you to ask yourself, are you being radically generous with your time? Are you being radically generous with your prayers? Are you being radically generous with your resources? And the challenge I have for you at this section is talk with your friends, talk with your spouse, or bring it up in community group. But let's get some ideas going about how to love our neighbors and being an advocate for justice and mercy in our community. All right, so we've got some ideas, we're generating, we're brainstorming, but how do we really do it? How do we fulfill this merciful and just calling without just trying harder? Because I don't know about you, but I get worn out pretty quick, right? Now, I do want to clarify, I do think a little effort is okay. You know, one of the, one of the criticisms sometimes people have of, this, of our brand of theology is that it makes us complacent. Um, you know, we say that we aren't saved by works, so we don't have any. <laughs> well, no, we should. Um, what we talked about earlier is if, if, if these things aren't present, it demonstrates a lack of understanding and a spiritual unwellness. So it's okay to put in some effort. We can be intentional with our actions and our attitudes, and we can look for God's ways to spread mercy and justice. But effort alone will not bring, a, bring apart lasting change. Eventually, we'll get tired of checking the box, and we'll give up. I want you to remember that being merciful and just 
isn't just about adding an additional item on our spiritual checklist. It's something that should shape the very disposition of our hearts. Can we shape our own hearts? I don't believe we can. I believe God does that. And I think God's grace plays a transformative role. He, it molds our attitudes and our actions, particularly when it comes to serving those in need. <clears throat> We're, um, you guys are familiar with the story of, of the Good Samaritan. Um, in that story, um, you have the, the hated Samaritan, and he is, um, he is the only one who is willing to risk his time his safety, and his resources to help the beaten, dying man in the middle of the road. While others who claimed to love God passed on, only the Samaritan showed this merciful, just love to his neighbor. But here's what I want you to, to think about. Um, it's just really interesting. So Jesus is giving this story, and he's talking to Jews, and he makes the half-dead, beaten man a Jew. He could have flipped it around. He could have made the Jew the hero and the Samaritan the half-dead beaten person, but he didn't. He's talking to Jews and he made the half-dead beaten man a Jew. He wanted his hearers to identify themselves as the half-dead, beaten, hopeless man dying on the road. Now let's consider our spiritual condition before meeting Jesus. We're all sin, we've all sinned and we've fallen short of God's intent for our lives. We've walked away from God. We said, I'm going to do it my way. This sin in our lives, it separates us from God. It creates enmity between us and God. And the thing that our sin earns us, our wages, our fair due, is death. Spiritual, eternal death. We are the half-dead, beaten, dying man lying in the middle of the road. And yet, in mercy and compassion, Jesus doesn't just risk his life to help us. He, he surrenders his life. He completely gives up his life to rescue us. So Jesus puts us in the story of the Good Samaritan because before we can show others this merciful, just neighbor love, we have to receive it. We have to experience it. There's a direct relationship between a person's grasp an experience of God's grace, and then his or her heart for justice and the poor. I mean, it, it wasn't the candlesticks that transformed John Valjean's life, was it? It was the merciful, compassionate justice that he received. Now, that justice doesn't look like the world's justice, now does it? The cross doesn't look like justice to the world, does it? So our challenge is we want to actively seek ways to advocate for mercy and justice in our community. 
We want to pray. We want to be creative. Man, we have, we have a great on-ramp with our mercy ministries. I mean, Megan was just saying there's lots of ways to serve. Okay, There's a lot of opportunity there. But please keep in mind, this isn't a check-the-box exercise. We're not looking to just check the mercy, check the justice box and move along. We want true heart change. So while we seek out these opportunities, while we're actively seeking them out, let's also be reflecting on the work that Jesus has done for us on our behalf. Man, that bike theft incident that I talked about before for me, that was an eye-opener. Because if you looked at me from the outside, you say, oh, that guy, you know, he gives from church and he serves in the, in the food, you know, food pantry. Uh, you know, I bet he's, he's uh, got a true understanding of, of merciful justice. But man, the contrast between me and that bishop, it highlighted a gap in my heart. On some level, I had forgotten the immense grace that God has shown me. When was the last time you took the time to consider the grace God has shown you? And I really mean, you know, man... Take the time to consider it because we hear the gospel up here every single week. And I love that we hear it. We need to hear it every week. But when you hear something over and over again, man, it, it can begin to wash over you. And the truths become more like, you know, we're singing along to a tune that we've heard a million times before without our, our brains really engaging and our hearts really understanding what's going on. Remember that Jesus died for you. Jesus died for you, and he didn't have to. He chose to, and he chose to because Jesus loves you. Put your name in there. Jesus loves you. And he still loves you today. And that's a wonderful thing. We're going to take communion This is an opportunity for us to reflect on this mercy and justice that we've been shown. And we can think about ways to fulfill our calling, to be merciful and just to our friends, our neighbors, and our community. So on the night before Jesus died, he went to the cross. He was with his friends and he passed him a loaf of bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. Then he passed a cup of wine, and he told them, this is my blood, excuse me, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So as we take communion, let's think about the incredible lengths that God went to in order to restore himself to us. And let's thank Jesus for all that he has done on our behalf. If that's where your heart is, if you're in a thankful mindset towards what Jesus has done for you, then we invite you to come up, celebrate, enjoy, reflect. If that's not where your heart's at, the invitation is for you to not take communion, that wouldn't really make sense for you, um, but just reflect on where you're at with Jesus. 
If you have questions about God, about Jesus, there are a host of people that would love to talk to you. You have pastors, you have community group leaders, you have random dudes like me. Like, there's a lot of folks who would love to wrestle through those questions with you. If you need prayer, there'll be a pastor in the prayer area ready to, uh, to pray with you. Um, I'm going to go ahead and pray, and then we'll go start our time of communion. <clears throat> Lord, help us to figure out what to do with these callings, this calling to be merciful and just. Lord, it's challenging, it's convicting, it's illuminating. God, help us to use it to um, help us see where we are with you. Where, are we really following you, Lord? And if it convicts us, if, if we feel like we're not, God, give us the strength to lean into your grace and to spend more time at the foot of the cross and let that galvanize us into being the light that you want us to be and, and loving the people you want us to love. Um, God, we're so thankful that we don't do this um, just based on something that you said, but we base it on something that you've done. That we can anchor the mercy and justice that we are to show on the mercy and justice that we have been shown. Thank you so much for what you've done to us through Jesus. And I pray that you give us new eyes this morning as we reflect on um, just the grace that we've been shown. Give us new eyes, give us a new heart. Help us absorb your grace like it was the first time. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thanks for listening. Learn more about our church and support by giving to the Mission of the Oaks at www.theoakscommunitychurch.org.